Hello, friends. Welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast, where we deep dive into the scriptures we examined from the previous Sunday morning without the constraint of time, as well as discuss questions and topics of interest from members of our Christchurch family. I'm Pastor Jesse Jarvis, your host. Let's dive in. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're excited to dive into the book of Numbers this week. We are in week four and book four of the Bible in our Binge the Bible series, and I am joined today by our worship and tech director, Bill Mayer. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We also have or did have a greedy fly in the room, and so if you hear some clapping, that's not applause. (laughs) (laughs) We are trying to stop Mr. Fly, although he may have left. I'm not sure if it's your hair gel or mine that he likes better, but he's bouncing back and forth. All right, we got some great engagement from our audience and some good questions to cover. And this is the first time this has happened since we started Binge the Bible, but I left an entire point out of my sermon on Sunday. And so uh, in the three services, there was a little peppering of what would have been an entire point all by itself. Um, But we did run out of time, and that is part of the reason we have this podcast, is so we can come back to that content, and so I don't feel the need to grab an extra 10 or 12 minutes and and uh, make things crazy between services on Sunday. So I want to start with that, and then we'll jump into our audience questions. So we were in the book of Numbers, and uh, we looked at Numbers 14, verses 1 to 24, which was God's response to the rebellion of the people at the report of the spies on the cusp of the promised land. And so uh, Numbers is the Hebrew name, in the wilderness. And it's a season of testing, and it really is about faith. It's about a revelation of God that is met with either faith or unbelief. And largely, Numbers is about the unbelief of the people of Israel and the judgment of God in the wilderness wandering, and the mercy of God in uh, giving the next generation the chance to see the fulfillment of God's promises. And so we have the righteous judgment of God in response to the rebellion of the people being that he would blot out all these people and that would have been right and just. God is the right one. He is the just one. There would have been nothing evil or wrong about that. The response of the people to God's revelation and promises in unbelief was worthy of that level of response. And so they did receive judgment, but that judgment was mixed with mercy on behalf of Moses, the intermediary, the type of Christ who was in the book of Numbers chapter 14, interceding for the people, verses 13 down to 19. And so in verse 20, we read that the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, speaking to Moses, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers and none of those who despised me shall see it, but my servant Caleb. And so this was the the judgment of God, uh, but it's also a testing. So um, God did not annihilate these people. He did keep them in the wilderness and they did learn from this mistake. Actually, they didn't because in the next section, they decide that they're sorry and that now they're going to do what God told them the first time, except he's not with them. And so there's a level of judgment there. And then, of course, um, as they fall in the wilderness, as the author of Hebrews says. And so that's kind of the text that we were hovering on and really is about the expression of unbelief that comes through complaining and grumbling and murmuring. And it reveals the fact that we have these expectations of what God is like, what God should do and how God should do it. And we really can tend to hold ourselves to the God position when we push these expectations on God and then are disappointed or grumbling when they don't go the way that we assume that they should. 
And so this is something that all humans deal with. And so this is paradigmatic for us. And I just shared a little bit about my own frustration and my experience of my kids grumbling and complaining and the things that I'm walking through. And really the, the picture though here is, do we receive the revelation of God that God has given? And do we receive that from him in faith? And if you're like me and many of the people that I've been talking to in Christ church, um, this has actually been kind of like a faith shaking exercise, spending this much time in the old Testament. So many of us don't really read the old Testament. So we have these concepts about the old Testament and we may be familiar with some of like the key stories and the most popular stories. But when you come to interact with how God was working in the ancient world, it can be really shocking and jarring to your current perception of what God is like. And so I've had several meaningful conversations with genuine people, genuine Jesus followers who are going, wow, this is not who I perceive God to be. And it's quite surprising to me. And so there can be this wrong perception that somehow God is nicer now or different now, or maybe, maybe I don't really know God the way that I thought. And so while the tendency for us in unbelief can be to stand in judgment of what God is doing and see him as doing something wrong or evil or less than perfect, righteous, just, and loving in the kind of violence that we see both in the sacrificial system and in the judgments against the Canaanites and in the judgments against the Israelites. It's really quite disturbing, and we don't think about God as being disturbing. But I want to remind all of our listeners, this is God's revelation of himself. And so we actually have to start not with our perceptions of him and our expectations of what he ought to be like and our kind of uh, Christianized 21st century perspective on what is good and right and just. And we really need to be able to go back to the beginning and start with who God is and let that shape our understanding of the world in which God is operating. And I think if you move from God's revelation forward, you're going to perceive God very differently than if you move from our personal experience and try to go backward. And let me try to explain that a little bit. So the ancient Near East was quite different than the world is today. And I tried to mention this in week one of the podcast, and we talked about it a little bit, but we have benefited from 2,000 years of Christian influence. We, we, have, we have social systems and governments that are built on principles that Jesus fulfilled and revealed uh, that stand against the powers of darkness. But before Jesus came, lived, died, was raised and ascended to heaven, before the Holy Spirit came and the church was born, before the, the kingdom of heaven began to spread across the earth, the, the world was a dark, violent, and evil place. It was also filled with pagan rituals that connected to the dark powers and to the deceased world, the underworld, and it had some features that you're we're probably unfamiliar with, but would just be shocking and disturbing. You're going to see that in Deuteronomy. If you haven't seen it already in your reading this week, um, God's saying to his people through Moses on the cusp of the promised land in this final book of the Pentateuch, he's saying, you've got to make sure that when you go into the land, you eliminate all these people. And so some, some of you already have trouble with that. Like, wait, we're, we're going in and taking this land, but we're killing the men and the women and the children and the cattle and the domesticated animals and we're we are destroying all of the wealth and the homes we are leveling this place to the ground and starting over and that just can just seem like god is a genocidal maniac like what is going on here but he connects that to the power that the deities of darkness the false gods the demon gods who have over this pagan um canaanite culture 
so much so that a few of the practices are mentioned in the scriptures in passing, but the offering of children to Molech to be burned alive as as a sacrifice. I mean, this was what was common in the ancient Near East. Um, the, the Ninevites, and you'll get this to Jonah, this is later on in the story, but the Ninevites were known for peeling the skin off of their victims and allowing them to die by exposure. I mean, the most, uh, they're just creating ways of showing, demonstrating power through evil. And this is like commonplace. And so there is all sorts of necromancy and sorcery and conjuring of spirits and curses and, I mean, exploitation of the weak, of children and women, and execution of the elderly, and constant wars and fighting. This it's hard to even think of a world. I mean, we watch these dystopian near near future movies, you know, where Mad Max beyond Thunderdome, and there's no order, and there's no law, and there's no safety, and I mean that they don't even come close to creating the culture and the society and the environment that the Israelites are going into. And so you have this people of God carrying this promise of God, having been delivered from the oppression of Egypt, which was actually quite orderly. It was pagan and it was uh, evil. However, it was there was a lot of order and safety and wealth and prosperity in Egypt, but they're, they've left Egypt. They're wandering through the wilderness into this unruly land filled with all these tribal um, uh, conflicts and and terrible, terrible practices. And so... You have to recognize that in this story, God is not only providing the promised land to the people of Israel, but by utilizing the people of Israel, like the sword of the state that we're going to read about in the New Testament, he's actually executing legitimate justice and judgment upon the Canaanites. And their evil runs so deep that to leave any any of it existing by its very nature is going to be like the leaven into the lump of dough for the Israelites. And so this is a full-scale removal of this entire society. And that's hard. That's hard for us, especially left kind of left-leaning progressive people, because there's a narrative that we've been sold that that says like all culture is good and and any type of like empirical conquest that eliminates a language or a culture or a tribal identity is by its very nature evil. And this is the this is like the morality of our day. And so this can also seem like, wow, you're just coming in and destroying these cultures and, and this empirical kind of conquest. That is, that is actually not what's going on here. But even if that was what's going on here, that would be a good thing in the Bible's version. Because these, these cultures and societies and, and rituals were so evil against the will and purposes of God um, that they deserve to be destroyed. Yeah, and I love here in, in Deuteronomy 9 that God really makes it explicit. He says in verse 4, Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, the Canaanites, before because of my righteousness, yeah. the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. And then he explicitly says, But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. So he's like, yeah. don't think for a minute. It's because of You're something better. you've yeah, done. Exactly. He's like, they're just so wicked. That we're going to get, we're, we're, I'm going to execute judgment and you will move into this space. Right. Which means the Israelites become the method by which God's, God executes judgment. And so like, it's hard for us to see any type of violence as a good thing because we have been raised in an environment post Christ where we are nonviolent. We serve the Prince of Peace. And so we don't, our, the kingdom of heaven is not a kingdom of the sword. It is not a kingdom of violence. It is not a kingdom of coercion. It is a kingdom of servant leadership. It is a kingdom of faith. 
It is a kingdom of self-sacrifice. And so those Christianized principles, those f- the fulfillment of the nature and character of God in his fullness in the revelation we receive in Jesus has influenced us even to the point where when we rewind the tape back to the, the pre-Christ interactions that God had with humanity, it can make God appear unjust when in fact he is quite just. But if we see God through the lens of Christ as being the same with continuity, then we recognize that, man, God didn't have to do anything to show mercy to anyone and could have executed judgment on everyone. And that was the that would have been a just move in, ex, in Genesis 6 with the flood. That would have been a just move in the wilderness with the Israelites. That was a just move with the Canaanites, with the Egyptians, because, because humanity is utterly lost unless God does something to reveal himself and to change our hearts so that we can come into a loving and faith-filled relationship with him. And that is what we are now experiencing, not quite the fullness of, but a revelation of in Christ Jesus. And so we have to make sure that we don't um, look with Jesus goggles at God and get the wrong perception of God, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in fact, at the cross of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God for sins and against the evil of mankind was mediated through his sacrifice of atonement. And it's in the death of Christ that we are forgiven, that we are cleansed, and by which we do not face judgment. And so the final judgment is still coming, and God is showing his patience that all might reach repentance, and we are in this age of the forbearance of God for the purpose of the the building of the kingdom and the spreading of the gospel. But judgment is coming, and it's the same kind of judgment that we see right here. And so we have to I really ought to turn up our appreciation for the age in which we live and the work of Jesus Christ and the fact that there is restraining powers of evil in the earth and that God isn't allowing the world to be as bad as it's been before. And he is bringing the influence of the church and in societies. And even though we are in a period of time in the West right now where it feels like we're slipping away from the moral fabric that we've been riding the momentum of since the founding of our country and the Reformation and the Great Awakenings, um, and we are, we're definitely experiencing that. Um, that is kind of a, a low ebb in what is still a rising tide of the influence of Jesus. And so we want to recognize that. This can be very jarring to us, but it, not, it should not give you a perspective of God to see that he's violent and angry and irrational. It should help you to see just how evil the ancient world actually was, that this would have been the right move and the just move. Yeah, and I feel like, um, you know, if you even though our cultures were drastically different, like God still is just by, uh, or executes judgment, small judgments in a way in, in, you know, in other ways, like giving other people favor over us mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, the principle is still the same. Mm-hmm. It seems like even though we're not out there fighting other, the Amalekites and whoever else, but like God is still just and producing justice, however he chooses, because his ways are so much higher than ours. Yes. Yeah. And this is going to become a, a topic further on too, as we get into the conquest and we have to start talking about the way that God is executing judgment at the hands of the Israelites and the way in which God executes judgment now. I mean, you get to the New Testament, the sword of the state is a real thing. God does appoint governments for the purpose of rewarding good and restraining evil. And so there are times when governments will have a justified war. And it does not mean all wars are justified. It does not mean that every country should get involved in every conflict. There's there's lots of conversations we should have about what is right and what is true and what is good. But what is the case is that there is a role for the sword of the state, but it is not the kingdom of heaven. And these two things are happening in parallel fashions at the same time, but we are not holy war people. Jesus makes that very clear. And we'll dive into the, some, some of those New Testament texts. 
But we're getting ahead of ourselves in Deuteronomy. I wanted to cover that because we see that in numbers in the way that God interacts with his people. And if you feel like God is harsh, we may need to adjust your perspective on God's ju- God's holiness and the unbelief that was there and God's the righteousness of God's judgment and then actually how remarkable his mercy actually is even to to give the next generation uh, the opportunity to trust him and to to enter into the promised land. So we talked about that, we talked about the failure of leaders and how that the the three points that I I planned to bring on Sunday that we got through two of them uh, was to address the problem of unbelief that there are these remedies uh, for unbelief that are shown to us in numbers. And the first was that we fix our faith on God's promises. And so we looked at verse 21 there in chapter 14 and several other places where God's the one who's been fulfilling his promises. And so we align ourselves with his purposes and we follow after his promises and we've got to keep our faith in the promises of God. So if you find your view of God being shaken, it's not a bad thing as long as it lands out with, nope, God is who God says he is. And God is the right one. God is the just one. God is the loving one. God is the faithful one. And that's going to give you a new perspective on those who are receiving the judgment of God and not the other way around. So Canaan was not a bunch of indigenous farmers who are nice little families who are um, making this beautiful little land for themselves. And unbeknownst to them, here come these raging Israelites from the wilderness that consume them like locusts. And it was this is not the 1619 project. So um, we got to have faith in God's promises. We start with God's revelation and then we get our eyes fixed on our leader. And so we get this picture of Moses, how he is a type of Christ, but how he is not Christ. And so we get his failure um, at Masa and Meribah and the way he strikes the rock there at the end of Numbers. And he makes himself equal with God when he's not. But then we see in, in John chapter three, where Jesus speaks as though he is equal with God. This is why the, the Jews seek to destroy him and stone him several times in the gospels because he speaks in a way that makes himself equal with God. This is what Moses did. This is why he was rejected, and this is what Jesus does, but because that's who he is. And so we talked about those two things. Now, uh, one of the things I was really actually the most passionate about and excited about for Sunday, which we didn't get any time for, was point number three, and that was that we would fix our feet on God's spirit. So we were going to fix our faith on God's promises, fix our eyes on God's leader, and fix our feet on God's spirit. And I, I was just shocked and, and uh, just overwhelmed and just had my mind blown reading numbers and to see the role of the spirit in numbers. I had never seen this before and it comes again and again and again. And so I wanted to just take a minute and kind of go over the section that we didn't get to talk about as we fix our feet on God's Spirit. Now, in the New Testament, we get very familiar with the phrase walking by the Spirit or walking in step with the Spirit or walking according to the Spirit. This is the way in which the New Testament writers, uh, Paul mostly, describes what this new life in Christ looks like, where we have this residual influence of the old man who is, uh, the power of sin has been broken, the penalty of sin has been removed, but there's the presence of the deceitfulness of sin is still on the inside of us, and we have to learn to walk in a way that is in keeping with what God is doing by his spirit, and according to the spirit that lives inside of us, and not walk according to the flesh. And so we get passages like Romans 8, 4, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Romans 13, 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, in sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Those would be evidences of walking according to the flesh. But we are people of the light, walking according to the spirit. Second Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. 
Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we get this picture of walking as a way of describing our new life in Christ. And very often that is in step with, according to, or by the Spirit. And so this brings us into this major difference between us and our ancient Near Eastern counterparts, the Israelites, because they did not have the Spirit. Uh, Moses had received the Spirit. And so Moses has this this, um, very unique relationship with God, and he has this Spirit that is referenced in a number of times. And so what I wanted to do is kind of like detail some of the way we see the Spirit of God accented in the book of Numbers that shows us the necessity that we have to fix our feet by the Spirit. And so this matters what you do with your life. This has to do with the decisions you make. I mean, it's part of the reason why we're reading the Bible in six months is we are making a commitment to walk with God every single day. And we can't do that if we don't know who he is or what he has said. And so we are opening the scriptures. Um, as Bill, Bill, Bill's here, he was sharing with our staff just the influence that he had received that we don't open the scriptures in order to gain more knowledge. We don't open the scriptures daily in order to check a list. It's not merely a spiritual discipline. We are opening the scriptures to know Jesus. We're opening the scriptures to allow God to speak to us through his word. It is a, a dynamic relationship with God that is engaged through the scriptures. Yeah, and I, I feel like it's so, so, so important, like you were mentioning earlier about asking God who he is. Like all, all throughout Old Testament, I see like people, God's always saying you, people who have idols will become like them. Like the idols that don't see, that don't have ears, that don't, that don't even live. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and that, that plays out, I feel like, uh, maybe not exactly word for word, but like principally, like if you idolize money and you're greedy or those things, like that's your God, you'll be greedy and you'll end up that way. And so like, because God, like the God of the Bible is our God, we need him to define who he is for us. So it's like so important to come in and things that I don't understand. I'll just, I'll just say, Lord, why did you do this? Yeah. And, you know, I'll just set it on the bookshelf and I'll wait for him to define and answer those questions for me as I continue to spend time with him. So good. Yeah. And that's part of the journey. Like we don't get all of our questions answered, but what we get in spending time with the Lord in his word is a fuller picture of what he is like. And he doesn't leave us, um, he doesn't leave us to figure it out on our own. Like he really does reveal himself. Like that is the point. Like God is the God who reveals himself. Like we have the scriptures on purpose because God wants us to know him. It doesn't mean that we are able to know everything, but he wants us to know him truly. And so we open numbers and we begin to see that there is this theme of the spirit. And it, you may have noticed this, but it started in, let's see if I put this in my notes or not. Yeah, I didn't actually put the scripture reference, um, but there was this really strange section in Numbers 5 that talked about a woman who was suspected of fooling around on her husband, and if he suspected her for being unfaithful to him, he could take her to the priest, and the priest would take some of the dust of the, the most holy place and mix it with water and make her drink it, and before that, she had the opportunity of like confessing if she had been unfaithful. And if so, then she would be punished uh, with death. 
And if, if not, then she'd be made to drink this water mixed with the dust of the holy place. And, and it would, it would, um, I can't remember the phrase in the version I was it was like reading. make your abdomen it would, swell it would make your, your thigh would waste, waste away. away. Yeah. It was like this external visible, um, torture that would like reveal your, your sin. So I know the ladies reading this are going, wait a second. Cause this obviously a lot of these stories, as we've talked about before, they can come across as, um, misogynistic or, or a patriarchal that, okay, what, why is the, the man doing this? And where's the woman? And all these guys are fooling around anyway. We know they are. And why, why is there this double standard? If you found yourself asking any of those questions, let me just, let me just explain this just a little tiny bit. And then I'll make the main point that I wanted to make. First off, the point of this passage, like many others is case law that reveals something about God. Okay. So before we get fixated on the details, let's start with, this is a really interesting hypothetical but the point of the hypothetical is that you don't get away with anything. God sees everything. Do you see this? And so the revelation here is, listen, if you're messing around, God sees it and you're not getting away with things just because you're fooling your spouse. And so there is going to be an, ex- an exposing that happens and that's going to be something that is supernatural. And so like that is actually the point of this passage. The point of the passage is you're entering into this relationship with God where you're meant to be set apart. You have all these rules about staying ritually clean and working through uh, things that defile you and coming right back into the very presence of God and walking in a manner that, that keeps you close to God and having this tribe of Levites that, that uh, insulates the presence of God from the people and creates a pathway for people to continue to come into God's presence and this high priest that represents the people of God before God and makes the atonement for the people and fulfills all of the, the feasts. And so this is all about proximity to God and an ongoing relationship with God. And so all of those things, all of the purification and all the guilt offerings, they required you to know and be honest with and confess your sin and then to take the next step to be right with God. And so Numbers 5 is dealing with the fact that there are things that only you know about and only God know about. And unless you are going to confess those things, you won't be found out. And so Numbers 5 is about Moses saying to the people on behalf of God, you are not going to get away with anything. Do you understand that? So that is not, it's not necessary. Before you get to, it was a man, it was a woman, it was this scenario, that scenario. This is a case law, hypothetical situation that is meant to show you that God doesn't let anything be gotten away with. Yeah, and I feel like if you if you draw it out and you, you go back to the church is the bride of Christ, and like it, because the, the one thing that, tr- that made me think was this, if a spirit of jealousy comes over, this husband, Mm -hmm. you know, and God is a jealous God. He wants everything, every piece of us. There's no hidden nook or cranny, just like you were saying from his eye in in our life. And so we have to give him all of the things, not just our Sundays or our, if you come to the prayer meetings on Thursdays, like he wants every moment of your day. And, uh, you know, it's just like that relationship with, with the Lord, like he sees all of those things. And that's just like such a deep, maybe a deep picture or like if you draw it out that way. Right. So that's, that's the second part. It starts to, God uses these, um, these case studies to not only make a main point, which is nothing's hidden from God's sight, but to also make several sub points. And the first is, I'm going to speak to the women here, especially if you felt yourself a little uncomfortable with this. Um, and you felt like, oh man, this is not fair at all that the, there's no counterpart for the men. Now we obviously read the Bible as Westerners. We want to see, we want to see everything spelled out with he, she, this situation, that situation, complete balance, and that's what seems equal and fair to us. But the, the ancient Near East didn't work that way, and so it isn't written that way. 
But if you actually think about how this system did work, in fact, um, it's going to go on, the scripture is going to go on to say, have laws against polygamy and so on and adultery. This is not, this is not okay that men do things that there's a double standard for, but the men did have all the position power. Um, this is a period in human history where God is allowing an unsubdued world to be filled with through multiplication, the flourishing of humanity. And that meant that men played the role of hunter gatherer and soldier and women played the role of maternal, uh, f- um, fruitfulness. And so the, the, the base nature of, of our genders is expressed there. And so the, the rights fell to the men to inherit and to strengthen the family. And so these, these are things that God built the fabric of society upon. And obviously, as we get into a world that is filled with, with order and opportunity and safety and law, these things don't go away completely because men and women are not the same, but it allows for there to be, you know, women who have property rights, which we're going to see opens up in uh, the end of numbers there in the beginning of Deuteronomy. And the, 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 the development of society by its very nature creates more and more rights for people in weak position powers. But that's actually what numbers five does too. Think about this for a second. If a man has all position power and he suspects his wife of being unfaithful, he, he has a legitimate opportunity to just completely write her off based on his own suspicion. And here God's given an instruction that actually vindicates a wife who's not been unfaithful and yet her husband has the spirit of jealousy, right? So on the negative side, this is actually a protection of women who are in a position of weakness because the man has all of the position power. And so God's actually moving here with these laws to make sure that women aren't falsely accused and therefore thrown away without the opportunity of being cared for. Do you see that? So that that's on the kind of the, the dark side of the coin. And then like Bill mentioned, the light side of the coin is there's this expression that you're going to see all throughout the Old Testament that God is a jealous God, that he does see his people as his bride, that he is looking for covenant faithfulness, and that our idolatry is is uh, spoken of in terms of adultery. I mean, all throughout Ezekiel, there's, we're going to get into some Ezekiel. There's some chapters you can't let your kids read. I mean, this stuff is like um, just vicious and vile and very graphic. And it shows you the heart of God that he is after a bride that is dedicated to himself. I mean, the book of Hosea is the same thing. God has this prophet Hosea, which we're going to get to that. He marries this woman, Gomer, who's a prostitute, and she continues to cheat on him and prostitute herself. And he goes back and not only takes her back and forgives her, but pays off her debts and buys her back from her pimps. And I mean, God's showing the jealousy of his love and his desire for covenant faithfulness from his people. And so you're getting a lot from these stories. But the main thing that I wanted to draw your attention to in Numbers 5 is the use of the word spirit, the spirit of jealousy. And so you're not, you're meant to be, noticing, oh, this is a new word, and what is this spirit? And then we see in Numbers 11 that Moses has this spirit, but the, the Moses is overextended. And so, you know, in, um, in Leviticus, or in Exodus, I'm sorry, in Exodus, Jethro, his, Moses' father-in-law, shows up on the scene and instructs Moses that he ought to appoint elders and leaders to, to keep him from having to be the judge of Israel all day long, every day. And so he appoints these leaders. Well, by the time we get into Numbers, and we've got an even larger community of people, um, Moses needs help. And so he's contending with God to say like, I'm not, these are your people. Like this is killing me. This is like draining the life out of me. And so God says that he is going to take 70 men, 70 of the elders, and he is going to put some of the spirit that Moses has 
on these 70. And so he has the people appoint these 70 men and he calls them together to receive this spirit. And you got to love the story. And this is one of the reasons I love the Bible. Um, if this is propaganda to justify how uh, awesome the Israelites are and what they deserve, it is not very good propaganda <laughs> because it presents the Israelites as a hot mess. And so you have this special moment when these, these distinguished 70 of millions are being brought into this position to receive the very, some a deposit of the same power that Moses has. And so the 70 experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and they prophesy. And if that weren't enough, Numbers eleven twenty six goes on to tell us that two of the men didn't even show up for the meeting, the ceremony appointing them to this powerful role of, of judge and elder in Israel and to experience the spirit of Moses, that Moses has. And it says, now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent and so they prophesied in the camp. So they didn't even bother showing up. But when the Holy Spirit fell on the 68 of them who did, these two guys also, right where they were standing, who knows? These guys have been like, let's blow this thing off and go get a pint. I don't know. And wherever they're at, they, they start prophesying. And so this is amazing. You're seeing this is a move of God. And it is not in response to the value or quality of these men because two of them don't even show up. And yet they receive this spirit of prophecy. And in verse 28, it says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth said, my Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, are you, look at it, jealous for my sake? And then he says this amazing sentence, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. And that should just like blow your mind because this is setting the stage for the new covenant era in which the people of God ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven by the sacrificing atonement of Jesus are cleansed to become the temple of God by the Holy Spirit. And now each of us receive an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is what God prophesied through the minor prophet Joel in chapter two. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so we get this window into the work of God that allows all the people of God to receive the Holy Spirit. And this is so powerful. And I love that Moses has this perception. Joshua is trying to defend the unique honor of Moses as he sees these two unauthorized men prophesying in the camp. And Moses is saying, man, if everybody could have the Spirit, that, that's the highest ideal. And I just think that is so, 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 so powerful. In John 3, 34, we read a little bit of John 3 on Sunday, but John 3, 34 to 36 says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so here we have the same the same paradigm of this wilderness wandering of are you going to believe in God and receive the spirit or are you going to reject God and have the wrath of God remain on you like those who fell in the desert. And so we see the work of the spirit 
happening in the book of Numbers, and I just love that Numbers 11 passage. I mentioned this in the passage that we read, and I didn't get a chance to come back to it, but when you are looking at this theme of spirit, you notice what we read in Numbers 14 and verse 24 after God says, as surely as I live and that the earth will be filled with my glory, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt in this wilderness and yet put me to the test these ten times have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. None of them who despise me shall see it, but my servant Caleb. And what was the justification for Caleb being brought into the promised land? Because he has a different spirit. A spirit of belief, a spirit of trust, a spirit of, of humility, of dependence, of acceptance, of the fear of the Lord. He has followed me fully, and so I will bring him into the land into which he already went as a spy, and his descendants shall possess it. And so we're seeing the spirit moving on Caleb, and you can see the marked difference between Caleb and Joshua, Moses, and these 70. It's also cool, this is kind of a little bit of a rabbit trail, but you'll remember that this number 70 is really a picture of God's faithfulness to his people. So you'll remember in the story so far, we've already seen the number 70 when those who entered Egypt as the family of Jacob were how many in number? 70. It was 66 plus Joseph, his wife, and his two sons, making 70. And then they came out a nation. And then what is the number that God chooses to pour his spirit out so that he might have an extension of the rule and reign of Moses and the people of God? 70. And then when Jesus is inaugurating his ministry and he begins to give a portion of his spirit in, pre- in precedent of um, the Pentecost, day of Pentecost, he gives a portion of his spirit and he sends out how many witnesses? 70. And they're able to have authority over demons and heal diseases. And so there's this movement of the spirit that happens as a picture. And so this is a picture of this is what everyone's going to get when the time comes. That's what we see with the Israelites going in, they're going to be a part of this great nation. That's what we see with these elders who receive the spirit. That's what God's raising up for himself, a nation of leaders, of spirit-filled leaders, and and a nation of priests. And then Jesus shows his disciples this, the same uh, experience as an example of what would come for everyone at Pentecost. Yeah, and I loved just the outplay of that 70s. Like, even though we only see a small number of people like represented by God's faithfulness that Moses displayed the heart, God's heart when he said, I wish that everybody would prophesy yes. that God's spirit would rest on everyone. And then we see it again reflected in Exodus like 19.6 where, where God's original intention for everybody was to make them all a, uh, a kingdom of priests yeah. and a holy nation, yeah. right? And we see those things again echoed in, in Hebrews when he actually says, you, you, the church, You're you it. are the nation of priests. Yep. So and, just like, and Peter picks up on that too in his epistles where he talks about you are a chosen race, a holy holy nation, a priesthood, a, a possession of God. And this, these themes, the, the New Testament writers who were Jews of the first century and who understood these stories and carried these stories, they perceived that this new age of the church, of those in Christ, God's Messiah, the recipients of the Holy Spirit were the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. And so this is who we are today. And this is what Numbers is really setting us up for. It also shows that God's spirit can uh, inhabit anyone. And so, you know, one of the difficulties for people throughout history, Christians alike uh, of different, of different um, persuasions alike have, has wrestled with is the difference between Jews and Christians and the relationship that Jews and Christians have with God. And there's, there's a lot of, in our Western Christianity, a lot of diversity around, okay, well, do the Jews have this geo-ethnic identity still? And do they have a way of salvation through the sacrificial system or through the receiving of the law? 
and, and circumcision and the keeping of the feasts while the Christian church has the Jewish Messiah and faith in Christ. And I'm of the persuasion that no, there's one root, there's one tree and it's Jesus. And you're either grafted in as a branch that's been cut off or you are grafted in as a wild branch, but we are all in Christ. And so Christ is the true Israel of God and in him, we are the Israel of God, whether ethnically Jewish or, or um, Gentile. Yeah, and I feel like uh, something that's helpful for me in, in my spiritual journey and just even understanding these things are a lot of things in the Old Testament are a foreshadowing of God's fulfillment yes. and the full picture that he provides in the New Testament. Yeah, and Balaam becomes uh, exhibition B in this spirit debacle, or maybe C or D, I'm not sure where we're at, but we're getting this picture of, of Balaam. Now, the, how, how odd is this, right? So we're getting this little excursus, and I believe it's chapters 22, 3, and 4, where um, we are brought into a whole other narrative, okay? So we leave the wilderness in in the kind of um, sovereign narrator mode, and we're brought into Balak, who is one of these Canaanite kings who's terrified by the Israelites. And in order to um, maintain control of his nation and to defeat the Israelites, he goes for the local um, dark sorcerer for hire, who is Balaam. And so you get this story, and it, it, there, it, there's some there's some uh, literary components that are in this story. There's repetition, um, and you're going to see he sends a delegation of of princes, and then Balaam says, "I can't do. I'm not going back with you to do your cursing. I can't do anything that God doesn't tell me anyway." And so whatever God says goes. And then he, ba- Balak sends another delegation of even greater princes, and and um, there's some confusing parts in the story, just like we saw with Moses, where God calls Moses from the burning bush. Moses objects to God, all the reasons why he can't be God's man and God's deliverer. And then he finally reluctantly does go after God gets mad at him. And then on the way, God says he's going to kill him in Exodus chapter four. You remember this story? We get the same thing happening here with Balaam. Balaam says, I can't curse this people. I can only say what God says. So I can't, I can't do for you what you're asking, but I can tell you what God says. And then God says, don't go with them. And then when the second round of, or the third round of, of um, delegation comes from Balak, he does go with them. He asks God, can I go with them? And God says, go with them, but only tell them what I say. And then this is where we get the Balaam and the don- talking donkey. God's got the, the angel of death ready to put a sword through Balaam because he's going. And so you go, wait a second. God said you could go. And now he's killing you. Do you see this discrepancy here? How many of you guys read that and thought, okay, hold on a second. What is going on here? God, what are you doing here? This is weird. So here, here's what's happening. Uh, Balaam, Balaam's God is mammon. Okay. He is not. A good prophet. He's not an Israelite. He is a sorcerer. He is a conjurer of dark forces. And for whatever reason, God has chosen to speak to him or reveal things to him in his sorcery. Now, here's the thing you get to know about God. God is bigger than all of these things and the maker of all of these things. God's prohibition against things like necromancy and sorcery and witchcraft is not because those things aren't real, but because those things are real. There's this whole preceding world and realm and narrative that happens before the creation of humankind that precedes humankind and that is we're given a window into in various times where there's these powers that are sometimes called gods and sometimes called hosts and some kind called demons and um, the princes of the air and there's all these different terms but the, the story we're in has a whole other layer of darkness and a spiritual realm and that we are called not to try to break a window into that realm. And yet, in all of these pagan cultures, all of, all of these pagan cultures do, in fact, do that very thing. Yeah, and I feel like, uh, you know, it's like all of those 
methods and those vehicles are all perversions of the real thing. Like exactly. you have communion with God. If you're in Jesus, you God's spirit lives in you and you have, according to first Corinthians two, or second, second Corinthians, no first Corinthians two, you have access to God. Yep. And like, why would you go through necromancy or like, you know, you don't need a fortune teller yep. to, to divine the future for you. That's a perversion. Yep. And so like, seems clear as day to me. Yes, God has designed this whole system with a high priest. He's given him the ephod. He's given him these stones. He's given them way to determine the will of God. He's got a prophet that he speaks to. God is saying, I'm going to come, I'm going to break this barrier between heaven and earth to speak to you and tell you everything you need. And your job is to receive with faith my revelation and walk in it. And if there's nothing new coming, continue in what you were told before. That's, That's what the fear of the Lord is. And that's what the call of a human is. And yet there's this impulse in a human to want to either justify our desires, to have some revelation of the future so that we can be self-protective. And so you're going to, this is obviously at the fall of King Saul, we're going to see this as well, where he goes to the witch at Endor. Now he had made an edict to destroy all of the mediums and necromancers and witches. And so he goes cloaking himself after he's cut off and God doesn't speak to him anymore. He can't, he can't get a revelation anymore because he's been rejected as God's king because of his unbelief. But now he's breaking the law and going to conjure the dead prophet Samuel so that he can get some revelation. And of course that ends up in the judgment of his death, which occurs in the next chapter. And so like, this is stuff that's going on in the old Testament. It's going on today too. There's plenty of, there's plenty of dark, uh, witchcraft and, and necromancy and conjuring and sorcery. And, um, this, you know, for our modern minds, a lot of people think that's balderdash, but I don't know, go spend a weekend in Casadega at a bed and breakfast and you tell me. Yeah, it may be interesting to play that out and say, like, you know, there aren't, even though we don't make idols of God, we have other idols like cars, money, and those things. Like, yeah. what are those? What do those things look like in today's society? I don't know. Yeah. And like you mentioned already, um, you know, the enemy is happy to use dead things to distract us and make us live life in a dead way, right? So if, if, if we're content to be, if we're content to be locked down by lust or greed or, um, um, power or success he's happy to let let us work 100 hours a week and have no relationship with our family and make no impact in the community and grow spiritually zero percent and destroy our lives while we're chasing a god that is not a god and does and leads us to become a reflection of that lifeless thing but there's also like an actively dark spiritual reality that other people will pursue more directly and so these things do in fact take place and balaam is one of them and so god said no don't curse this people very clearly well, Balaam comes back to God and go, can I, can I curse him now, God? Because uh, he's offered me a pretty purse here. And so God says, oh, go, you go ahead. But it's not a go ahead with approval. It's a go ahead, go down that road, see what happens. And what happens is God's going to stop him. Now, look what happens here. And this is a lesson to Balaam. This is a lesson to Balak. And this is a lesson to the reader. Now, I'm not exactly sure how in the world all of these details ended up in Numbers. Because we're going to read before the book is over that of the nations that the Israelites dispossessed of their land on the east side of the Jordan, Balaam was killed. You're going to see that in just a passing note. And so I don't know if they if they captured Balaam, if Balaam gave them this story. I don't know where all this came from. But there's a ton of detail in here. But the detail that's remarkable is that God sends the angel to strike down Balaam while Balaam is on his donkey. And his donkey is able to see into the spirit realm and view this angel that's got a sword hovering above Balaam to execute him. And so he, he twice stops Balaam from being killed 
And the third time, the donkey speaks, and they have this interaction to talk about the what, ba- what the Balaam's donkey sees, and then Balaam's donkey speaks, and then Balaam has a conversation with his own donkey. All right, so any kind of modern progressive person is going to think, okay, this is just silly. This is just an old fairy tale. This is Shrek. This is Shrek one. This is not. <laughs> this is not a serious story. But if you take it seriously, what is the point here? Look what God is showing Balaam. I can speak through anything. There is nothing special about you. You have no power outside of what I allow. And he demonstrates that through the story. And this is the story to Balak. Balak, you are a king. Just because you have the wealth to hire a sorcerer does not mean you have control over the purposes of God on the planet. And so he frustrates Balaam through the donkey. He frustrates Balak through Balaam. Balaam continues to prophesy blessing and not curses. They try three times, and after the third oracle, um, Balaam is encountering God in a way that he's coming to align himself with the purposes of God. And it is not like salvific, I don't think, but in verse 1 of chapter 24, it says, When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, which he had done three times at this point, he did not go as at other times to look for omens, so this is not engaging in his dark practices, but he set his face toward the wilderness. This is a phrase you're going to get of Jesus when he is on his way to Jerusalem. It, said, it says it. he set his face toward Jerusalem. And verse 2, And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. Also, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but in the early chapters of Numbers, when the people are ordered by tribe, there's a couple of features that popped up here. And this is, I'm going off on a rabbit trail here, but forgive me. I'll come back, I promise. The temple of God, the tabernacle, is placed at the center of the camp, Right? The Levites camp around it. And then you're given the tribes are set into four groups, north, south, east, and west. And if you look at the numbers of people in each tribe, by scale, if you were looking down on the camp of Israel, do you know what shape you would be seeing in the tents? The shape of a cross. Imagine that. Not only that, but each of the four groups of tribes were set under one of the tribes under a banner, and we are told nothing about the banner, except that there was a banner, that, a flag, that the people under the leadership of one of the four tribes of the 12 would lead the other three, and those were, if you go look back in Genesis 49, at the blessing of Jacob over those 12 tribes, you would find that the tribes were the lion, the ox, the eagle, and the man, and these, my friends, are the Four living creatures of Ezekiel chapter one who are always in the presence of God. I mean, the tying together here of what is is being displayed is remarkable. This is what Balaam was seeing. Balaam is looking down from a high peak with Balak the king, who he'd gone way, way, way up to a high point in order to curse Israel. And now he's looking down on Israel's camp and the spirit of God came on him, verse two. And he took up his discourse. He starts prophesying and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob. He sounds like a psalmist, doesn't he? Your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like a cedar tree besides its water. You're getting all this Garden of Eden language. This is the, the place in which God dwells with man and blesses man. And that is what is up on 
Israel. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be many in waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his, ki- his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like horns of the wild ox. This is a picture of, of a powerful army. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce through them with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him up. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. This is the Genesis 12 promise to Abraham and it is uttered through the the psalm of Balaam who is pleasing the Lord because the spirit of God came upon him. So you get that picture with all of these moving parts. The big picture here is the spirit of God is unlimited and can go wherever he chooses. Of course, Balaam's going to die in the next chapter, but by the death of Christ, we live and we receive this outpouring of his Holy Spirit. The last um, little thing we see in Numbers about the spirit of God that causes us to, to, to have the remedy for unbelief in our own lives, again, as we fix our faith on God's promises, as we fix our eyes on God's leader, and now we fix our feet by the spirit. And so we're going we're, we're going to literally walking in step with the spirit. Every single day, we are waking up to say, all right, Lord, you are in me and I'm going your way. And so I'm not going to go my own way. I'm not going to run after things that are not where you're going. I'm going to stay close to you. And I'm going to walk according to your spirit. So we're going to, we're going to close up here by going over to Numbers 27. Numbers 27, 15 to 20. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may be as sheep that have no shepherd. Sound familiar? This is what Jesus saw when he saw the Israelites harassed like sheep without a shepherd. This is basically saying leaderless. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit. And lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. So what is the, what is the mark that sets Joshua apart as the rightful successor of Moses' mantle of leadership? It's the spirit. And what are we going to see when we get in? to the Elijah and Elisha stories where Elijah succeeded after performing his seven miracles by the farmer, Elisha, who God reveals to him. And it's when Elijah is taken up into heaven to escape death, like we saw Enoch was. And his if he gets to see him, he gets a double portion of his spirit, right? And then, of course, the mantle uh, falls, the, the kind of scarf, the vest, the authority of Elijah falls to Elisha. This is amazing. We're going to get to this later on in the series, but this is this this picture of the Spirit of God is the one who anoints and appoints, and that Spirit is on Joshua. So I couldn't help but be stirred by the, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in Numbers. And I wanted to draw our attention to the fact that the Spirit of God has been active in the purposes of God and in the people of God from the very beginning. And so the Spirit hovered over the waters in in Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God has been present. Every single time you have a deliverer raised up, they receive the Spirit of God. Uh, every time that there's an expansion of God's purposes through delegated authority, it's by the Spirit of God. What sets a person apart is the Spirit that's in them, whether that's Caleb or Joshua. And even as we consider this case study in Numbers 5, 
the spirit of jealousy. Like, where is this coming from? What is on the inside of a person? What is stirring them up? Is it a reflection of who God is or is it something evil? So with Balaam, we're, we're wrestling with this fact of what spirit are you toying with? And then you get this, this reality that the Holy Spirit is unconfined and can work through anyone and do anything. And this is what ultimately gets revealed to Peter in Acts, and this is how the good news about Jesus goes to the Gentiles, and it's attested by the baptism of the Spirit, which comes to those uh, who believe. And so this is a picture that is that is obviously very clear in the New Testament, but it's just punctuated here in Numbers, and I'd be remiss to not draw our attention to it. So for further study, you can go back to that Joel chapter 2 passage that I read. That's quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2 when he stands up and explains what's happening at the day of Pentecost. And it begins with that, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And it ends with all who call upon the name of the Lord uh, shall be saved. And so Peter instructs everyone in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we get this phrase from the Old Testament. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And so all of the boundaries the geo-ethnic boundaries are removed and the call goes out to everyone and it's the spirit of God that's given and that is the defining mark of those who follow God. And this is the last verse I'll read to you, but Revelation chapter two and verse seven, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And this is the, the beginning of the book, the end of the book. This is the Holy Spirit speaking. And this is my confidence every Sunday morning, even every podcast, like we're getting into God's word, God's revelation, but it's his spirit that makes it alive in us. And are we listening to what the spirit of God is saying? Are we listening to what he's saying to the church? Are we listening to what he's saying to us? Are we living our lives to follow after the move of the Holy Spirit inside of us every day? He is unrestricted because of Jesus. He is at work to fulfill his purposes because of Jesus. And when he overcomes our unbelief and he finds a person who has the disposition of the fear of the Lord, who has the spirit of Caleb, the spirit of Joshua, there is no end to what God can do through a spirit-empowered church if we will remedy our unbelief, if we will fix our faith on God's promises, if we will fix our eyes on God's leader, and if we will fix our feet and follow after the Holy Spirit every day. And that's what I'm passionate about doing for myself. That's my invitation to all of you, and that's what I hope that you are experiencing as we read the Bible in six months. Yeah, I feel like I can't emphasize, if we can't emphasize enough yeah. that you are, you don't, you don't, you're not here alone. Like the, yeah. the spirit of the Lord lives in you and he will reveal scripture to you because Old Testament is the foundation for the New Testament. So as we continue to go through this stuff, engage with God in his word and ask him to reveal things to you. Ask him questions that you have about him. You know, because like that is such a foundation for for how to read the Bible. Yeah, and you're going to need that, especially if you haven't already experienced this. But this week, going into Deuteronomy, there's going to be a lot more of these case law scenarios. And if you're not reading them from understanding the heart of God, they're going to read backwards to you. So you're going to get you're going to get. Uh, we had one question talking about um, the passage. I believe it's in Deuteronomy 22:28 that talks about a, a woman being essentially forced to marry a man who's raped her. Right, and so you're going to that to go. Okay, is are you kidding me? Um, like that would seem like the worst possible thing you could imagine. And so you're asking yourself, what is God doing here? Is this a preventative measure? Is God revealing something about this position power dynamic that's here? Is this meant to be restrictive? 
for the behavior of men and, and say basically, hey, if you do this thing, you're responsible for this woman, or are we supposed to be reading this in a different fashion? If we, if we take things at immediately face value and then impose our system of morality on God, we can come to some real wrong conclusions about what's going on there. But we start with, what is God doing here and why would he do this? And how did this function in the ancient Near East? What would this have been like? How would this have been heard? And also, like, was this something that is temporary? So you're going to see this happen a lot as we continue through Deuteronomy. There's going to be a lot of laws that aren't completely filled out and aren't completely understood. And they're going to be expanded upon in the second readings, in the second law, Deuteronomy meaning second law, um, that are going to fulfill out the revelation of God already. And so um, this is a practice of the Christian church even today to say, okay, well, here's these things we know are true about God. And now here's this situation we've never, I mean, the Bible says nothing about the internet, right? And so what are we supposed to do with things that the Bible doesn't directly speak to? We have to be able to take the principles and truths that God has revealed, and we have to be able to apply them in our context. And that takes wisdom, and that takes precision. And so our contexts are different. And so we're going to go into this Deuteronomy reading, and I'm sure you're going to end up with a lot of specific questions about some really challenging verses. And so we're going to have the same practice next week on the podcast. We're going to take apart some of those, and we're going to evaluate how we ought to read them, how the original hearers read them, and what their intended effect was. But we got to start not with an attack on God for breaking our paradigms, but instead to say, okay, let's deconstruct my paradigms because they're not fitting who God truly is. And then let's rebuild my paradigm from the truth of what God has revealed and try to apply it to my life today and see where it's the same, where it's different. So that's what we're going to be working on. Uh, We welcome your questions. Go ahead and send those to us. I've been getting some great ones uh, on Sundays after the services uh, in conversation and try to kind of factor those into um, our conversation, but love to get those from you in writing. And how can they get them? How How can can they send their questions? Oh, yes. Send your questions uh, to me, jesse, at joinwithjesus.org, J-E-S-S-E, no I in jesse. Um, And so uh, jesse at joinwithjesus.org. And um, I I got a bunch of them for next week already and look forward to having some more from you. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. It's uh, It's been a joy. Love being able to interact with you. And uh, we look forward to being with you again next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's deep dive into the scriptures. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better so that you can implement your identity in Christ, engage in your unique purpose and calling, and create community around your relationship with Jesus. For more content like this and opportunities to connect with us in person, find us online at joinwithjesus.org.